0: Thank you for joining us at the Walla Walla University Church. Today we begin the first part of our four series, The Art of Gratitude. And this will be a series of three sermons in which we will explore the biblical injunction for us to live as grateful people. And today we will begin with a sermon titled Uncommon Generosity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the music which has been made Thank you for the prayers which have been prayed. Thank you for the word which has been read. And as we continue in worship, we invite you to tarry with us. Lord, we pray that the thoughts of the week, the stress that we carry will be set aside so that in these next few moments, your spirit may speak to us and we will be attentive and receptive hearers. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The world's super rich hold the greatest concentration of wealth since the U.S. Gilded Age at the turn of the 20th century, when names like the Vanderbelts, the Rockefellers, and the Carnegies held vast sums of wealth. A recent economic study by the Swiss bank uh, and Pricewater Cooper called Riding the Storm tracks some of these numbers. We're told that between April and July of 2020, the wealth of billionaires climbed to a total of $10.2 trillion. And at the same time, millions of people struggled with their jobs and, and waited for government subsidies and help so that they could make it through another month. Here in Walla Walla County, our unemployment saw a vertiginous climb from 4.5% to 12% in April before declining back to 6% in September. In our own congregation, we saw people who had the happy fortune of being able to start businesses and more who found businesses struggling. We had people who went on unemployment, people who were furloughed, people who had their wages cut. We understand, as apprentices of Jesus, the importance of money as a tool of goodness and also as a thermometer of trust that is central to our lives. And that's why today we'll be talking about money. Everything we do is intertwined with money our cars, our houses, our food, our clothes. Our romances, our vacations, our wars, our lawsuits, our tuition, and our taxes, everything. Every aspect of our lives is inseparable from money. And as apprentices of Jesus, if it does not intersect with our checking account, then I think our apprenticeship and our followership of Jesus is irrelevant If our spiritual practices fail to connect with our personal finances, with the way in which we view our economics, then our kids may judge rightly when they think our religion is merely a quaint decoration or a nostalgic relic. The spirit-empowered journey of apprenticeship to Jesus must always include our pocketbooks because money is life. And like many things today, if I was to ask three people to come into a room and to give me a biblical vision of money, I am sure we would leave that room with four different answers about how we ought to practice generosity and how God ought to interact with our money. There are some people who would say, for example, that any wealth that Christians have is a mark of ruthless Darwinism. And that it is, um, in fact, not a sign or a blessing from God. There are some who might say, well, if you don't have wealth and you are uh, poor, poverty is actually a sign of irresponsibility rather than a call for compassion. And so we'd come out of that room talking about money and wealth and economics and poverty with vastly divergent views. Even the Bible seems sometimes to be multivocal in how it talks about money. If you were to go to Deuteronomy, for example, you'd find that there wealth is what God desires for his people in the book of Deuteronomy. If you go to the Old Testament and you go to the book of James, you will find that wealth is warned of, and the rich are seen as rapacious. And so even in the Bible, it seems there can be many divergent ways in which to approach this subject. But today, we will listen to the words of God as communicated to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 22, says this, You must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all the crops you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chose for his name to be honored and eat it there in his presence. What we find in Deuteronomy chapter 14 is that the Jewish people were expected to regard 10% of their harvest as sacred. They were expected to remember that it belonged to God. They were not free to do just what they wanted to do with it. It could only be used for purposes specifically delineated by God. The tithe belonged to God. Now, what did that mean? And perhaps this word tithe is strange for you. What did it mean? What was God going to do with bushels of wheat, baskets of apples, and jars of wine? What was he going to do with it? According to this passage in Deuteronomy, God intended to use his share, the tithe uh, of the harvest as a foundation for a festive party for his children. We can read it actually when we go to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 14 and we see God inviting them to bring his tithe for a party. Let me read it for you beginning in verse chapter 14. Uh, 23 and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. He is telling them bring the tithe the first 10% to a place that I will designate and have a festal party. Now, if you've grown up in the Adventist tradition or in a similar one, you may be wondering or feel a little jarring when you read this text. Because here we have this dreaded word, tithe, and you're thinking, don't mess with my money. And yet God, rather than trying to guilt trip anyone or make it seem like a morose moment, instead is painting a picture of giving and of tithe in which there is a festal celebration. And so for most of us, when we think about tithe, we think it was it would be a strange bedfellow to think about tithe and joy in the same sentence. And yet this is how God tells his people they should look at tithe. Most of what the Jewish people produced, 90% of what they produced, in fact, was theirs to manage according to the ordinary demands and the ambitions of life. So this small section here, this 10% of tithe is God's, but 90% was given for the Jewish people, for them to uh, live their lives and to meet the demands of their ordinary lives. They were to be responsible enough to produce food, to supply what they needed for their families and for their kids. But they were also free to produce surplus and to go to the market and to sell it. And it would make sense for some of them to turn their harvest into silver. And if they were smart and hardworking and lucky, They could build wealth that included a larger house, increased acreage, servants, and nice clothes. And God was all for it. The image of a successful, prosperous farmer lies behind the call in this passage for the practice of tithing. And it's interesting for me because having been in Seattle for many years before moving to Walla Walla, I would often read this and start to think about uh, ways in which to understand this text. But now being in the Walla Walla Valley and driving around and seeing literal, actual, real-life farmers, I read this text and I think, that's right. God wants those of us who are here, those who have come Uh, from farming backgrounds, those who are still farming to do well, to be wealthy, to be successful, to be prosperous, because this is what God assumes must happen for us to practice tithe. The devotion of 10% of their harvest, 10% of their increase is to be given to God. And so we can perhaps sum it up and say this, the notion of tithe presumes financial success. God wants his people to do well. And I think we should sit with this for a moment. Again, many of us come to this subject with so much baggage. We're feeling so shamed, we're feeling as if we are in a place of scarcity. And when God speaks about tithe, it seems as if he is trying to take from us what we don't have. And yet, from the beginning... As God has removed the children of Israel out of a place where they could not have their own property, where they could not do what they wanted with their wages, where they were in fact slaves in Egypt, God brings them out and he says, I want you to give me 10% because I am going to prosper you. And so tithe presumes financial success. God wants his people to do well. And with that expectation as the background, God called for the Jewish farmers to devote 10% of their harvest to God, which raises the obvious question, the question that my seven-year-old daughter would ask if she was reading this. She would probably say, Dad, what's what's God going to do with wheat and with apples? What's he going to do with all of this grain and with all of this Produce. And when we read Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see that God's portion of the harvest, the tithe, is to be given to the Levites. Which, if you know what that means, you may feel like this is a rather self-serving sermon, Andreas. It's the Levites. You mean the clergy. You mean people like you were to be given that fund. Well, the reason God gave the Levites uh, the 10% is because they were excluded specifically from land ownership during the time of Moses. And land ownership was the foundation of wealth. And since they were excluded from commerce and from land ownership, society was to provide an alternative source of support for them. Now, within the Adventist church, we have actually created a doctrine of tithe, and it's a very specific tithing concept. For example, when you give tithe and you give to the tithe fund, that is used within the Adventist church to support clergy, to support the work of education, and to support the work of administration so that the gospel may go forward. And in this passage, the appropriate use of God's portion is broader than just the support of clergy. Tithe is also to be given, read what Moses says here it should be given to the foreigners living among you, to the orphans and the widows in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. And so we find here God speaking over and over again, about this cherished trio. And in Deuteronomy alone, they are mentioned 11 times and they are always mentioned together, this cherished trio. And when you scan the Old Testament, you will find over and over again that the way the cherished trio are treated, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, is a barometer of the moral well-being of society. And so if this cherished trio of God is not being treated well, you know that there will be a prophetic voice that will thunder across society and will say, things are going badly because this cherished trio, God's cherished trio, are being maltreated. And so what does God say about these people? For example, the foreigners, or we could use these other synonyms, the stranger, the immigrant, the sojourner, the refugee, essentially marginalized people with no rights based on birth were to be served from God's portion. We also find here that the uh, widows, the marginalized people vulnerable to poverty were to be served from from God's portion. And then, orphans, marginalized kids without any protection were to be served from God's portion. And so, if we were to synthesize or summarize all of these ideas from Deuteronomy chapter 14, I'm sure a very strange passage for many of us, we could say this as the summary The highest purpose of money is to build a happy, equitable community. That's it. This is God's highest claim. This is a picture of the kingdom of God here in Deuteronomy, that the highest purpose of money is to build a happy and equitable community. A bountiful harvest is a call for a bountiful feast, a feast that is to be shared in the presence of God. And wealth, as God gives it to us as a gift, is to be shared in community. And the feast that we should share as we appropriately use the wealth God has given to us is a feast that should include the outsiders, the least, the last, the lost, the left behind, the left the left out. These are the people that should be included as we recognize the gifts of wealth that God has given to us. Or to put it another way, wealth confers a heightened obligation. I'll say it again. Wealth confers a heightened obligation. Now, within the Adventist tradition, we return tithe and also give a free will offering to our local budget. And so there's the 10% in which we return to God because we recognize that 100% is his, but he gives us 90% to be good stewards of, and so we give that 10%, but the 90%, we have the opportunity to make further free will offerings because of the gratitude that we have for what God has done for us. And as Adventists, the local budget is where that other 90% of our uh, wages come into play, and we are able to give to the local budget of the church. And the local budget is the funding mechanism for ministry. Now, it helps with the mundane. It helps with the lights. It helps with the broadcast. It helps uh, to keep the heat on. But it also supports the marvelous, the formation of our children, the support of prisoners who are transitioning to society, food for those who are hungry. Did you know that when you give to the local budget here at the Walla Walla University Church it helps to feed students who do not have enough as they are going through college. Did you know that when you give to the local budget here at the university church it is used to introduce Jesus to people who don't met him um, who don't know him. Did you know that it gives people comfort when they are hurting? For example, the Benevolent Fund of the University Church has been used this year alone to help individuals and families in hardship. It's helped dozens of years, uh, it's helped dozens of people this year, and I could have spent the entire 30-minute sermon just giving you story after story of how your giving to the local budget has touched in a tangible way the lives of people, both near and far. Your dollars this year have helped families after a child was taken by helicopter to hospital, Your dollars have helped grieving widows after the death of a spouse. Your dollars have helped children after difficult transitions in their homes. Your dollars, although you may not know it, have flown to other continents and have helped uh, members who have families who are refugees in worn, torn countries. Your money did that your planning at the kitchen table, your decision with your spouse about whether you're going to have uh, both Hulu and Netflix or whether you're just going to have one of them and perhaps give to the local budget made a tangible difference in the lives of many people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, there is a wonderful blended vision of wealth as a basis of honor and wealth as a basis for obligation. And we cultivate our awareness of how utterly dependent we are on God when we practice giving, recognizing that it all comes from Him. And we practice giving both tithe, the 10% that belongs to God, and the local budget uh, are free will gifts. And I'm convinced um, today, even in 2020, even during economic turmoil, that when we practice giving, it is a concrete spiritual discipline that connects us with the wisdom of interdependence. Giving is a discipline, one that helps us to be formed and shaped as apprentices of Jesus. In fact, in 2008, uh, a study, subjects were asked to rate their happiness, and then the subjects were given two envelopes. Now, in these two envelopes, they had no idea, but one of them contained $5 and the other envelope contained $20. And the participants were randomly assigned to either spend the money on themselves or spend the money on other people. And they had to do all of that by the end of the day. Those who spent the money on someone else responded and reported as having happier moods than those who spent money on themselves. And now I'm sure there are many of you thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Like if I had the money, you better know I'm getting a triple grande latte from Starbucks with like seven pumps of syrup and everything on top and I would be very happy. But this study says those who spent their money on other people were reported as being in a better mood and being happier. And then a separate group, not the group who were given the envelopes, but a separate group who did not know what were going on, came in and they were asked to predict the outcomes of the experiment. And most people who predicted the outcome of the experiment, just like you are watching today, believe that those who spent money on themselves would be happier. And not only were they wrong, they were significantly wrong. Because the research suggests this, and it's interesting, that thinking about money may propel individuals toward using their financial resources to benefit themselves, but spending money on others can provide a more effective route in increasing one's own happiness. It's so counterintuitive, and yet it's the deep wisdom that God was given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 14, and he can. Continues to invite us as apprentices to realize. So not only is giving, whether it's through tithe and offering or giving to other people or other charities, uh, a mandate that God has given to us because it's an obligation of the wealth he's conferred to us, but it's not only a spiritual discipline, but it also just helps make you happier. And my friends, that for me is a double win, that we can give, so that our souls can be formed for us to be more like Jesus and in doing so we can be happier people And I believe that this is true That when we devote 10% or 20 or 30 of your income to God That over time you develop a deep sense of adequacy and you develop a deep sense of your wealth And this month This very month, like many of you who are watching, who are our members, I made my contribution to the church. I didn't agonize uh, over how much to give because it's a habit. And and also because I'm terrible at maintaining habits, but it was also easy because Adventist giving and my Chase account have a good relationship. And so it just comes out every month and I set the amount based on my uh, on my 10% and also based on the offering which I want to give. And so I set it up and each month as a spiritual discipline and, and as a habit to support the work of God, to affect the lives of people who otherwise I could not touch. I give and I do so gladly. And I'm grateful that there are many of you who practice this same discipline. And being part of an apprentice of Jesus is trusting that Jesus speaks the truth about reality. This has been a sentence I have been chewing um, over for many, many weeks. That one of the core principles of following Jesus, of apprenticing our life to Jesus, to be fully trained, is to realize that Jesus speaks the truth about reality. And so when Jesus says that to devote 10% and to recognize that as his and then out of a heart of generosity and out of deep wells of gratitude to also give to help other people. He is speaking the truth. He is not saying it as some sleazy divine salesman who's trying to slide into your pocket. He is speaking the truth. And when we believe that Jesus speaks the truth about reality as apprentices of Jesus, we will let that touch our lives, including our money. And there may be some who are listening and you, you've already poo-pooed the whole message. You've already decided that given 10% and the way in which the church has said, well, let's follow this. It's, it's just Old Testament. It's legalistic. It's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's actually a terrible way in which to give. Maybe. But if we're to come to the Bible, I would say that the only amount that's ever mentioned in the Bible beh- beside giving 10% is selling everything. And... And you may be super spiritual. I'm simply a babe in Christ. And so I'm not ready to sell everything. But I do think there is deep wisdom in following the practice God laid out for us to recognize that 10% is his. And we have 90% to steward well uh, as we live our lives and meet our obligations. And to recognize that in giving tithe we do so because we have been blessed and then we are blessed because we give and our ha- and our handling of money becomes a rich spiritual practice and a source of pure joy Jesus insists over and over again that for his apprentices giving habitually is important for cultivating spiritual life. And let me repeat that. For his apprentices, for those following the way of Jesus, giving habitually is important for cultivating spiritual life. Occasional, spontaneous giving. Of course, it's good. And it does good. But it has very little of the transformative power of regular habitual systematic giving and since money flows through every aspect of our life a fully developed walk with Christ a fully developed spirituality necessarily includes the practice and the habit of regular giving and those who have practice of it nearly universally speak well of its benefit It's a practice that will provide a theoretical and experiential foundation for wise thinking about money. And it makes us happy partners with God. And so together, when we give, we increase and maximize our ability to be agents of God. And as we reach uh, the conclusion of 2020, I want to thank all of you who have partnered with us so far in regular, systematic giving. Those who have linked your Adventist giving to your Chase or to your Wells Fargo, to your Bank of America account. Those of you who set that money aside for the rest uh, through the year and, and give it in December. We want to thank you for doing that. We want to thank you for those who gave tithe and those who gave offering to the local church budget that allows the ministries of this church to affect uh, those who are grieving and those who have just been born. We thank you. And as we come to the end of the year and you make your decisions and your financial choices, we pray that you will see uh, giving to God as an opportunity to increase in your gratitude, and increase in a spiritual practice that will help us to be happy partners with God. Amen. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you, and we're so glad you worshipped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you are joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.